Welcome back to another episode of Rolling with the Punches. In this episode, we are going to be discussing the Holocaust. This is an episode that I had recorded a while ago, but thought it would be appropriate to release during the Bain of Mitzram, the three weeks. And as we begin the nine days, as I'm recording this, I can't think of a better time to reflect on the tragedies of the Holocaust and to hopefully gain hope from the experiences of our guests that we have with us today. When the Jewish people became aware of just how great the magnitude of the destruction that was left in the Holocaust was, they had a discussion about what should we do to commemorate such a day? Should we make our special day to commemorate the horrors of the Holocaust? And many great gedolim were consulted. They discussed to try and figure out what the right thing to do was. And they looked into the kinos on Tishavav, and they actually realized that kina chafhei, that we say on the day of Tishavav, says that there are no new tragedies since the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash that are not in some way connected to that initial tragedy, that national tragedy that affected all of Kali Yisrael. And so Tishabav, the Olam Yeshivas, has become the day where we commemorate not just the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash, not just the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash, but of all national tragedies that have unfortunately impacted Kla Yisrael in such terrible and negative ways. It is for that reason, and it is my hope, that as we enter and we are in the nine days, that this episode will allow us to tap into the emotional loss, not just the loss of the six million, but the loss of a time when we were so deeply connected and really felt in such a real and tangible way HaKadosh Baruch Hu Shechina, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's presence in our lives, and Amir Tzashem to mourn that loss, and, and Amir Tzashem in the very near future be able to feel just how close we were so many years prior. I was looking through and skimming through the Art Scroll Kinos for Tishabov, and I saw the following question brought down, which was, why is Gullus so painful? Why, throughout Jewish history, have the Jewish people experienced so much suffering, such intense suffering, such horrors that are difficult to listen to and hard to understand? What's the reason behind all this suffering? And the approach that they bring down is that part of the role of the difficulties of Gullus is a wake-up call. Because it is very easy, and it's human nature, that when we find ourselves in a certain place, we like to get comfortable. We like to enjoy ourselves. And we want to enjoy a sense of tranquility. The problem becomes when we get too comfortable, when we decide that we don't need any help because we have everything that we need, and we lose sight of where the ultimate destination is, where our real home is. You know, in speaking to Holocaust survivors, and you'll hear in this interview as well, people 
never saw this coming. People never imagined that the place where they grew up, where they felt protected, safe, and stable, that it could ever lead to the horrors that came. And it is scary to almost see, in a way, how comfortable we've been in America and how, in the recent past, there have been certain elements that have began to make us feel less comfortable. And my hope is that myself, primarily myself, am able to realize that America is not the final destination. Hopefully it's the last gullus, but it's not the final destination. And that we can't get comfortable and content um, here and feel like this is our home and this is, you know, where all of our life is meant to be lived. Rather, we must recognize and, and I think work on these initial warning signs to recognize how we can protect ourselves, A, and also to understand what it means to really be close to Hashem and what we should all be yearning for, which is to have that connection, to be able to have the Gili Ashkina with the Bayesh Shlishi, Merit Hashem, and Meher Amenu. This particular episode has been sponsored anonymously. Le'ile Nishmas Arya Lev Ben Shraga Feivel, Label Zisman Alava Shalom, who just happens to be my grandfather, my mother's father, my Zaidi. My Zaidi was such an incredible, remarkable, strong individual. He was a Talmachacham. He was a successful businessman. He was a tremendous Baal Chesed, a Baal Tzedakah. He loved to learn, and he really lived a full life, and a life that was filled with emunah mitachon, literally seeping through him and rubbing off on anyone that came in contact with him. I may have pointed this out in a previous episode, that so much of the emunah mitachon that I feel that I have gained had to have come from my grandfather because he needed it to survive and utilized it to survive. And he was really able to pass that into his entire family, generations already. And uh, it's nothing short of amazing. It feels a little bit sad to reflect on the fact that my grandfather, my Zaidi, would have been a terrific guest to have on this podcast. Probably would have ended up being a three-part episode of... And that's after doing a lot of editing because he was, like many Holocaust survivors, he was someone who was initially quiet about his experiences in the war at first. But once he started to talk about it later on in his life, no one was able to get him to stop. And he, Baruch Hashem, has left over so many different areas that carry on his legacy. He wrote a book. And he was in a documentary and was recorded with Steven Spielberg. And Baruch Hashem, his legacy lives on and his story lives on. But it's still hard because I would have loved to have sat down with him and just asked him all the questions that were on my mind. And part of that kind of just reminds me that our life in here is finite. And that we have to chaperain, as they say. We have to try and take advantage of the time that we have with the amazing people that we have. However, before we get to the interview in this episode, I would like to share a couple of 
stories from his experience, my Zaidi, Ayurleben Shagafibel, his experiences during the war. He went through so many different camps and really was on the brink of death in so many situations and talks about how his life was saved in miraculous fashion. And I'll just go through a couple of them. The first story I'm actually going to read directly from his book called Ani Mamin, I Believe, my label Zisman. I will put a link to purchase the book in the show notes. And I highly recommend to um, all that really want to gain a tremendous perspective um, to go ahead and purchase the book. You can reach out by email um, if you can't find it elsewhere. Anyway, this is on page number 21. My father said to me, Labka, run. I was by nature a wild boy, a wild redheaded kid, just 13 years old. So he didn't have to tell me twice. I started to run. The Nazis could have taken their rifles right there and shot me, but they didn't. I guess they figured they would have a big laugh at the expense of a small Jewish child. So instead they sent a dog after me. That German shepherd looked as huge as a pony to me. But with Hashem's help, I managed to outrun him for about 400 feet or so. Then he sank his teeth into the fabric of my pants. I was trying to pull away from him when right at my feet I saw a fallen branch. I grabbed it and zapped him on the snout as hard as I could. He let go and I kept running. I ran around the block and then ran back to our house and hid up in the attic. The Nazis came after me and searched the house, but I was very quiet and they didn't find me. Finally, they got tired of looking and went away. My older brother Beryl told me later that day, that they took away my father, Shaga Feivel, along with our youngest, Chaim Yisrael, a little pipsqueak, only 10 years old. They took, him, they took them either to a fort outside of town and shot them with many others over an open grave, or they took them to Auschwitz to, jo- to die in the gas chambers there. I don't know where my father and little brother, may their, memory, may their memory be blessed forever, are buried. I just know that they are dead somewhere. And I know that if my father hadn't told me to run, I would be... I would be there with them today. But God had decreed otherwise, and I lived, and I'm still alive to tell this story. The next stories I'm actually going to have my Zaidi himself share. Uh, there are Baruch Hashem recordings online of him telling over his entire story. So I clipped out a couple of them, just one or two to share with you. Again, just to give a feel of A, who he was, but also just like this episode hopes to achieve, to give a perspective of the horrors that were experienced during the time of the war. But Birkenau, I don't have to tell you what Birkenau meant. Birkenau is a place where they had the crematoriums. Birkenau is where they guessed. And Birkenau did something else, which people don't, they don't tell the stories. Birkenau was a place that after guessing the people, the crematorium couldn't take so many people because 1944, the convoys was so huge and so fast and so furious that they gassed the people and outside, anybody that was in, in, in Birkenau can tell where it was. They had big, big cradles, they used to make big holes and put them all in, put in some gasoline on top and burn them. So. It was, that was another method of, of killing them after they were dead. So now we were on the train. 
We were not the first train, we were not the last train. Sometimes in the middle, maybe in front of us, maybe about 15 or 18 wagons before us. And they, the sliding door, they opened up, and everybody had hours, so we went down, we were young kids, so it was very easy for us to jump down. And people that go, start going straight to the, to the gas chambers. And we were standing over there, and all of a sudden, one of the boys, some of the boys asked me, label, what do we do now? And I say, well, what can I tell you? Why don't you repeat after me? Let's say Shema Yisrael. And I, you have to understand, because we're talking now, over here we're talking about of Israeli Seyyid, you know, Shemitah Mitzvahs. From the 137 boys, maybe 20% come from Orthodox families. Kovna was a beautiful city, but not all the Jews were Shemitah Mitzvahs. People don't realize that. Yes, yes, Slabatke was there, the Yeshiva, there was Batimet Washim. So they they didn't say, ah, you don't, you don't know what you're talking, you don't know what. And we're standing there. Now, it took several hours, and you see that the crowd is getting, getting already less. And I said to them, I said, no, you know what? We're just about to have to go now. I said, why don't we line up five abreast, and I'll be in front, and let's march in, singing Anima Amin. She said, you know, label, you're crazy, you got you, you, you went off your rocker. They're going to kill, they're going to shoot us before we get to the gas chambers. I said, what, what do you want about That'll be the best thing happened to us. And as we are just about to have to go, one by one it says, let's do what label said. I said, come on, let's do it. So we lined up five abreast, and I'm in front, and we're marching, singing Anima Amin. We come to the air, and I, I'm in front, so I say, hold, that means stop, and we're attention. And the two SS guys that were there, they went bonkers. They, went, they couldn't figure out what to make of us. They never, in the, the three and a half, four years, when they, when they can now exist, they never saw, they never experienced a, a group of boys coming in, marching in, and singing. So they started to look for the papers. Where are we coming from? What are we? Where, 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 what, why are we so different? And I was in front, so I heard them talk. They say, well, where are the papers? When the Rabbi Nishalem wants to make miracles, it is in Teva. What took place is a very, very simple thing. It's not so simple. as <laughs> The Germans had documentations and, and reports and paperwork on every transport where they're coming from. Whether they're coming from Kovna Ghetto, or they're coming from Budapest, or they're coming from Hungary, Romania, Czechoslovakia. It doesn't make any difference. They had papers for that. Now they couldn't find anything. What took place is as follows. By the time we came there, it was already about five, six o'clock. So the guards changed. The people, the, 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 
so powerful to me to hear um, just the Yad Hashem the Siyata Deshmaya the Ashkacha Pratis as my grandfather would always say and another one of the things that I love so much about my grandfather is how he was whatever the opposite of a pushover is he stood up for what was right and if there was something that bothered him he would make sure to take care of it. And so I had to include this story. One of my favorite stories to hear him tell over 
where he really just stands up for what he believes in. I think it, it's worthwhile to tell you. Uh, uh, so, what did I do? What did we do in Auschwitz in Birkenau? Well, I was busy in a way because I had film, so I used to put on the film in the morning and then give it to the people. So, I was busy with my film for th several things. First, to make sure that they don't catch me, they don't catch anybody. Every every time you put on film was, you know, if they catch you, they, they, they shoot you on the spot. But we did something. Because if you don't do nothing, then they realize you can go crazy. So what they decided, the Germans, that we were like like Lula horses, they had a wagon that used to pick up the garbage. So we had a wagon with rope, and and uh, on every side was maybe eight eight to ten boys on one side, and on the other side with rope. And we used to go from from in Birkenau from Lager to A B C D, you know, it was about seven eight, and pick out the garbage. At the end of the day, the, the the wagon was full. Next day again, what they decided, and I don't know you know why, that they should have. They should have a, a watchman, an SS, a soldier, with a rifle to watching us when we're going from one camp to the other camp. Now, to give you a little bit of a, a, a picture, what was in Birkenau in, in, in when it was active in '44, there were the 10-foot barbed wire. Part of it was electrified, part of the not. Outside was every 50 feet a tower. By the way, I saw it on one of the films, a tower that was an assessment with, with, a, with a machine gun. We were wearing the white and blue uniform. Most of us did not speak the language. We didn't even know where we are, but they decided that they need a watchman to watch us. So we were pulling the, the wagon, and he was walking around the wagon, and by, by 11 o'clock, he was so bored that he had to have something activities. So in, in Birkenau, uh, there was not uh, paved, the, the roads were not paved, it was clay. So when it rained, it uh, sometimes used little puddles, maybe for a day or two days. And when he saw that there was a puddle, that we were pacing a puddle, he used to go back next behind a little boy. And hit it with a bayonet, so when you're from the back, you're not aware of it, so you fall into the puddle. And to him, it was a big joke. But meanwhile, the boy was was wearing a whole day wet pants, and I couldn't take that. And I was right behind him. And I said to myself, you know, if he does that again, I'll kill him. And you know that. So in the afternoon. As we changed, I was on the other side, and we we're pulling the wagon, and he does that run again in front of me. And he hits him, and he falls in that puddle, another puddle, and he gets wet again. And I turn to him and I say, you know what that means, right? Why are you doing this, you pig? Shrine is a pig. And he turned around. He wanted to know who has the audacity to talk to him. And as he turned around to face me, I took him that little fist. Ladies, listen to that. 
And I hit him where it hurts. It's a very good protection, you have nothing else. And he doubled up, and there goes the rifle right between my eyes. And I tell him, that's me again. I say, you schwein, go ahead, shoot, you pig. And I started to scream at him that I intimidated him. Well, I'm here, obviously, he didn't shoot me. The last clip that I want to play from my grandfather, a short clip, is where he talks about why he tells his story and why it's so important to continue sharing the story. And it is so emotional to hear what drove him to write a book, to speak across the country, to speak around the world, to lead a March of the Living tour, uh, what, what motivated him to tell his story. And it also points to us in terms of our generation, what achrais we have to continue telling this story. Um, you'll hear on the interview, it, it, Mrs. Scharf may disagree a little bit, but this is likely the last generation that will have Holocaust survivors that we could actually speak to and we could ask them about their experiences. The next generation will not have that. And so it is so critical, it is so important that we take advantage of these kedoshim that we have amongst us and ask them all the things we want and get all the information and then record it and make sure that we're able to share this so that nobody ever forgets the horrors, the difficulties, and so that hopefully we could do whatever we can to ensure that history doesn't repeat itself. So here are the final words from my grandfather. And so we were outside. And one day... They said that uh, tomorrow we're going to go on a march and we're closing up this this camp. That was just about the end of April. And we went, what you call, on the dead march. On the Turkey march. Why was it a Turkey march? Because we went from Matthausen, we walked to Grinskirchen. Grinskirchen was a concentration camp that nobody worked, but nobody came out alive. Reason for it being that they didn't feed you. So that little water and that little bread that you get one day, after one day, two, three, four days, that's it. As it is, everybody was half dead already. So we walked on that march and it was a long march. And something took place on the march, which I am going to stop and tell you because it's very important to me. And I believe it's important to you. And this is why I talk to people about it. So we were walking, and people both were on the gutter flying like, like flies, really, human beings, all, all, all of them. And I didn't feel good already because I did something which I shouldn't have done. If somebody will remind me, I'll talk to you afterwards. And the man, was laying half in the gutter, half on the sidewalk of him, and he picked up his head, and he, I, I was on the right side, he calls me, Ingala, Ingala, come here, little boy, come over. So I thought that he wanted me to help him up, to get him up, so that because, because anybody that fell behind, they used, to, they used to shoot so that nobody will be alive to testify, whatever. So 
I tried to pick him up and say, no, 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 you don't have to do that. And then he raised his hand and he started to shout at me and he says, do, do it, I'm the creek. You will survive the war. I don't know how he knew it. Zogzai, Zogzai was from Gatonsos. what I did to us. Don't forget me. The boys told me, I have to go on, let's go, we cannot fall behind. And then I looked back, about 25 feet, he's gone. I didn't have, I guess, the maturity to ask him the name, where it comes from, what country. Maybe, tell maybe to children that survived. Now you know why I talk. My grandfather, my Zaidi, his yard site was just two weeks ago on Yadalatamas. May his neshama have an aliyah, and may he be a Melitz Yosher for all of us, along with all the other Kedoshim who experience such pain and Yusurim through their lives. I know that was a long introduction, but I think well worth it. Um, and really allows you to hear both a male, and now in this interview you will hear a female perspective, one that I have never heard before. Um, Full disclosure, Mrs. Leah Scharf is my sister-in-law, Zipporah Scharf's grandmother, Um, and uh, I am big fans of the Scharf Mishpacha, and of course of Bobby Leah, and it was so, so meaningful to be able to sit down with her to have this discussion, and I'm happy that this discussion will be recorded and that people can hear her story. Again, it's so, so important that we continue to have these discussions to record what specifically took place during this dark, dark time period that many people want to forget and some people want to deny ever took place. And if anyone would like to share a story or knows of a survivor that would like to be interviewed, I would be so, so happy to interview them as well, again, because I feel such a strong achrayas to make sure that we get all the stories, as many as we can, and continue sharing those to the next generation. I wish all of you a meaningful fast, and we should be zocha mir Hashem to the geula shleim of We looked like skeletons. That was the miracle. That was our miracle. They could have shot. Why didn't they kill us? I mean, they were killing them left and right. They could have shot all of us, but they did. They made us walk. We went to that camp. And there we waited out the war. Victor Frankel, a Holocaust survivor and the founder of Logotherapy, is known for saying... He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. The Holocaust is an exhibit of just how evil and depraved humanity can get when people are driven towards the wrong goals. To create a systemic process of alienating a race and then proceeding to torture and destroy them in the most heinous ways possible through shootings, experimentations, and gas chambers 
can only take place when the most vile and immoral of society are in control. It's hard to imagine that it has been less than 100 years from the beginning of the Holocaust that killed approximately 6 million Jews. To think of all the trauma, death, loss, and darkness that filled that time period brings up such deep feelings of sadness. To think of how different the Jewish people would be had we not lost some of the greatest, strongest, and smartest people of our nation brings up questions of our existence. To think of the lasting effects that the Holocaust has had on subsequent generations through intergenerational trauma and shifting the mindset and core beliefs of so many magnifies the feelings of grief and loss. Yet despite the events of the horrors of the Holocaust, the Jewish people have bounced back as we have done so many times in our history. We have shown how resilient we are and how we can build back stronger when we work together. Individuals who lost entire families and witnessed their own relatives murdered in front of their eyes found a way to start life anew and build thriving families and lives for themselves. In this episode, we will hear the dramatic story of Mrs. Leah Scharf and her accounts of her childhood as a 10-year-old girl living during the horrors of the Holocaust. As she shares the details of what it was like living in holding camps in Bergen-Belsen, it is clear that she embodies the following idea. Where there is no hope, one must create hope, as giving up hope is never an option. Welcome to Rolling with the Punches, the podcast where we speak with individuals who have overcome adversity in order to learn about their experiences and provide support to those who are facing similar challenges. We hope you enjoy. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to be sitting with Bobby Leah Scharf. Um, we are Mishpacha, but it, an absolute pleasure to be in your honor and your presence. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. It's my pleasure, and it's my honor to be doing this with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So today we're going to be discussing an episode that's dear to my heart as my own grandfather survived the war, and I learned a lot of his experiences, but um, unfortunately he's not with us today. And uh, I never really got the female perspective, um, and I know that you have so much to offer. So we're going to be learning about the Holocaust today and your experiences. Um, where, where do you think, start wherever you feel comfortable in terms of... Well, if I'm going to discuss the war and the Holocaust, I have to start with you. When we were, when Holland was invaded by Germany, by the Nazis in 1940, and I was seven years old, and I, um, my father was not with us. He happened to have been away for that particular Shabbos. He and his brothers had like a, a reunion, a get-together in Belgium, and they were not there when they started bombing. My mother came running into the, into the living room. <gasps> there were planes going, and there's bombing going on, and there's a war, and my father never made it back to us. So he eventually wound up in, he was running away, he was in Belgium, and tried to get back, and people said to him, listen, don't go back there, because they'll kill you. Just go and see if you can get them out, which of course he never did. Wound up in, in so they started running, and, and then they wound up in Portugal, 
In Portugal, he got a visa from some relatives in, in the United States, and that's where he stayed for the war. That's my father. So I grew up without a father, literally, because I, I didn't see him until after the war. Wow. 19, I don't know. And what, what was he doing in America? Yeah, he had to he had to find uh, make money. I mean, he he landed in America without a penny because he left for the weekend. It's like yeah. you would go for a weekend. He yeah, he put some cash in his pocket and that's it. Right. That was the end of that. No, he he was working in the diamond line, and he he was a, a bigger Rahmanas than we were. He was devastated because he he knew more or less what was going on. He had a wife, two small children, and an, an and a mother, and he didn't know didn't know what was going to happen with us. So I basically grew up without him. By the time I got with my father, he, I was already a teenager. So, so you were growing up in Holland, and you remember kind of the Shabbos when Germany invaded. Yeah. Um, do, do you remember? I came home from school. Okay. As a matter of fact, I, as little as I was, I used to walk to school. My mother let me walk. That's the kind of a country that was. And I, beautiful day, and I came walking home from school, and I saw this commotion in front of my building. We lived in a nice six-story building, modern. We had just moved there. All the neighbors were standing around. I came upstairs, and there they were, the Gestapo. They always came three people with a list. So they had us on the list, and uh, they said, well, you got 15 minutes, time to go. We're leaving. That's how I left my house. They didn't say where, they didn't say what. Nothing. Well, I... I was little. I, I was 10 years old at that time. And to me, it sounded like going to camp because they were forever talking about the camp, the camps, the camps, the camps. I was going to camp. I wasn't particularly uh, upset about it. Can you imagine that? They came, they took me out of my home, out of everything. Nobody said anything. My mother even didn't say anything. We just, we went like sheep. Now, did you know anything before? Like, were you expecting this? Did you hear about other people that were being taken to camps? Well, we lived in that, in that uh, we now lived surrounded by Nazis who were picking up Jews around the clock all the time. Uh, Percentage-wise, 80% of Dutch Jews perished in the camps, the biggest percentage of all the... And everybody went quietly. My mother picked up her bag, and they told us we were going. We were going. I wasn't particularly upset about that. I I was a little bit excited about going to camp. You had no idea. I didn't know. Even though we used to watch from our window, we lived in a very nice, modern, new, fairly neighborhood, a lot of Jews, a, a lot of... Spanish Portuguese were living there and we would watch from our window how they were rounding up and picking up Jews from door to door house to house they had a list 
somehow they didn't get around to us yet, but we watched them picking up and putting them on, on trucks and going away somewhere. And, and did you know that it was somewhere not good or you, did, you had no idea? I thought about the camp, you know, what's the camp? I, I, no, you know, my mother, she was remarkable. She was never down. She was always put together, never complained, never cried around. She did what she had to do. We had to wear stars in about 1943. So I was already a little old, 43, no, before that, like four, maybe when I was eight years old, we had to start wearing the stars. We had to buy them, pay for them, and sew them on. Wow. And I sewed on my own and cut it out. They had to cut it out. And I sewed on my own star. And I remember my mother said to me, oh, now we are going to wear stars. We are going to be proud to be Jews. Right. That's, that's the attitude right. there was. Anyway, they came and they got us. That's it. That's the last I saw of my home. Wow. I, I can't even imagine. So, Can you imagine somebody walking in here into this beautiful house, and that's it. You're going. 15 minutes, get whatever you can. We're leaving in 15 minutes. So what did I take along? I took, my mother took along, uh, uh, I took along a hummush, wow. which I'd gotten for my 10, I was 10 years old. I have it. It, went, it. it made all the rounds. The kids have it. They took it for with an English translation, uh, with a, a, a Dutch translation. And at the end of the hummus is music. All the Zemiris that we used to sing was there in musical form. I carried that with me throughout all my experience. It's, it's a great question, you know, if you have 15 minutes to take your things. I think in, in today's generation, you know, everyone's number one answer would be their cell phone. And, and the fact that you took your chumash, you know, it's a... I took my chumash. Yeah. And not only that, but written into the chumash, it says, I got this from my mother for my 10th birthday. Wow. I took that, and I took a very thick book along, which was Dutch. But it was, I was dreaming of that book, and that book had all, everything in it, stories and poems and a fantastic book. still have it. Sippy has it. At oh, home. wow. Okay. Yeah. So it was you. You had one sibling at the time, right? My brother. Older or younger? Younger. Younger. Um, and your mother, because your father was and away. And my grandmother. And your grandmother. My, my, my grandparents moved in with us after, during the war. My grandfather died on a Friday night in the house, sitting on this beautiful red, still remember, red upholstered chair, but it's having a stroke. The Friday night before you guys were taken away, that's when... The, when no, but he, oh. he died on a Friday night. Oh, much we, earlier. We were still home. We watched him die. He wow. snowed them. I mean... Uh, Jews were not allowed to go out to get a doctor. I mean, there was no, no way to even get a doctor, nothing. My mother did run out. She put a cape over her star because she had a star. She risked, she risked her life trying to get some medication for him. But it was too late. By the time she came back, he was already healed. So there was already severe segregation, though, for Jews 
Meaning, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, I mean, he must have died in that uh, maybe 1943. So, so before we kind of go to where they took you, what were some of the other kind of um, things that? Jews were not allowed to do during that time? Nothing. We were, we, as a matter of fact, I'm just going back a little bit. We had to wait 10 days to give him a Leviah. He was lying in the house, in my bed. They couldn't go out to bury him because they were picking up Jews left and right. Then we got word, and now it's clear. They stopped, so they buried him. And he's buried in, in, in Amsterdam in a cemetery. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, right away there was segregation. We couldn't use public transportation. We couldn't use telephones. We couldn't own cars. We couldn't, nothing, nothing, nothing. We, we couldn't use the beautiful parks that they had. We were not allowed to go into that either. Nothing. You know, Holland was a very beautiful liberal country, very progressive. And they had everything. Everything that you have here in the United States, they had double. Everything. But we were not allowed. We were not allowed. We were not allowed. Our doctors were not allowed to practice anymore. Our lawyers were not allowed to practice anymore. Nothing. We still were allowed to go to shul. They let us go. We had a beautiful shul. I went every Friday night. I went to shul. And Shabbos, of course, and we were allowed. Um, yeah, they, they didn't stop us. We our schools did not close either. The only thing that closed was that every day there were less kids. Wow. They picked them up. We wouldn't know. So we we weren't allowed to do anything. But I didn't, you know, it didn't affect me that much, that. But I think what people want to know is, like, if if people saw, you know, this is always the question that people ask, if people saw kind of this deterioration, you know, why wasn't something done about it, right? We saw that things were getting segregated. Why? Why did the populations of all these countries, why did they let this happen? Yeah, that's that's exactly the question. What, why? And why did the Jews go like sheep? The Jews could go like sheep because if when they came to pick you up, first there was the Gestapo, he was the, the, with the list. He always had a helper with him, with a dog. There was a second guy. And then the, there was a third guy who came along who wrote it all down. So what chance did you have, really? Right. And they came carrying guns and... Huh? They came with guns and everything? Yeah, they had a gun and a dog. Intimidating, and, very intimidating. And you went quiet, you went. So they, they, they pick you up on this Shabbos, right? It was on a Shabbos. Um, you have 15 minutes to get your belongings. And what, they put you into a car or a truck? But we were lucky. We sort of were a little bit... We had some papers... You know, some Jews had these citizenship papers, which our family got for us in Switzerland. So we were like citizens of Paraguay, whatever. So they came with a car. They took us with a car, took us to the Jewish theater, which is a magnificent building. 
they turned the Jewish theater into a gathering point. When you came there, they were sitting by the tables, the Germans with the benches, with the writing, everything. Everybody had to register, and they separated us from the parents. They put us in a different building, and there we had to wait it out until they decided to send us to the real concentration camps, mm -hmm. which they did. How long were you in the theaters for? In the theater? Yeah, where they, where they had everyone gathered. Come, uh, maybe, uh, maybe a week or two. Only, you know, all the kids were in, it was like a, like a little children's home that they put us in. And we were separated for that time. And then we, sent, then we were sent out. I mean, they had everything written down. And when are you going? And how are you going? What's your name? Everything. So, so during that week, what, what were you doing? What was it like? Was we were in that children's home. And the children's home was run by the Jewish Red Cross. I'm Jews. They were all Jews. Right. So they treated us very humanely. I mean, we, you know. You didn't feel in danger at that point? Danger? Yeah, did you feel at that point? No, no, not at all. And what about the fact that you were separated from your mother? Well, that wasn't so great. But again, you know, everything was done with a lot of people around you. So you saw a lot of other kids were with you and... and, and uh, it didn't seem so bad. I knew, I knew where my mother was. It was like across the street. But you didn't see her that whole week? No. Not once. So, so then after a week there, they then brought you to the first camp that you were in? After about a week there, they finally decided where everybody is going. So they sent us to a holding camp. It was called Westerbork. You ever heard of that? Nope. Yeah, that was like a holding camp in 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 uh, not far from Amsterdam in Holland, and whoever they picked up, they sent there. They had barracks for the camp, and then okay, well, that was bad. When I, then I came to the holding camp, my beautiful home and my everything that I ever had. And I was a spoiled little kid. And, and then I come to this camp with barracks and bunk beds and no real blankets, you know. But the thing that really got to me, the first night there were fleas. You know what's a flea? A flea is a thing that goes little bugs. like that. And it settled, it settles itself in, in, in your hair and your clothing. I was hysterical. I was totally hysterical. I would, I mean, how old was I? I was 10. At that time, I was 10 years old. What, what would today be a third grader? Huh? What yeah. would today be a third grader? Yeah. 10 years old. So my, my mother managed to find somebody. They didn't have sleeping pills. They had powders in little pouches. And she had a little tranquilizing powder. And she gave it to me and put me out to sleep. Woke up the next morning. And then, uh, you know, whatever. It was a camp. It was horrible. But it, it wasn't 
Bergen Belsen where I wound up. So again, this was just the holding camp and yeah. it was already terrible. It was a holding camp and Jews came from all over Holland. So sad. And every Tuesday night they would come to the barracks with a list of names and say, these people, get ready, get packed tomorrow, the trains are coming and you're going to uh, Poland. Again, did they know what's waiting for them? No. No. So every Tuesday night they called out the names and then the trains came and I'm one of the and we we used to go to the trains and say goodbye to the people who left. We also left eventually, but and on one train was my aunt and my and my cousin. We saw them. They came from a different camp. Mm-hmm. And they were going on to Poland, and then we found out later on that they went to Auschwitz. They died right away. So, in the holding camp, how long were you there for? In the holding camp, uh, maybe four months. Four months, and and it wasn't a concentration camp, so they weren't putting you to work. They were just. What was? What did your day look like? What did I want? What did your day look like in the holding camps? What did What did you do? Nothing. I drained around. I had my mo- I mean, my mother was there, my brother, my grandmother, and I, I just strayed around, so not, nothing much. Uh, no, I'm trying to understand, meaning that you had these, these barracks, you had not good conditions, you had fleas, but, but you're still a child, you're, you know, yeah. you're 10 years old. I don't know, meaning nowadays you have parents and they're complaining because they can't entertain their kids for five minutes. I know. You were here for four months. I don't know. I did what everybody else did. What, what was everyone else doing? And as a matter of fact, my mother got sick there, and she wound up in the infirmary. It was still a halfway... It wasn't humane, no, but anyway. And so I went, and I cooked. I cooked for her, for my mother. I was 10 years old. What did I cook? I got hold maybe of a carrot, maybe I found a potato... And I cooked the soup for her, brought it to her, and um, she got better. You were, you were with your mother in the holding camp? Yeah. Okay. We were together. My and your brother, brother? And my grandmother. Oh, all of you. Okay. So, um, and, and they fed you? They gave you food? Yeah, we got, yeah. I, mean, I don't know. But they fed us. We ate. Because, no, I, I know kind of from stories in the war that you know, in the concentration camps, they fed very little. You got very little food. Well, that comes later. But but that's what I want to know. In the holding camps, was there also very little food, or they gave they fed you enough? No, it was also very little food, but enough enough to sustain you because they didn't want any casualties in that camp. Uh-huh. They were waited, so uh, they sustained you. They gave you some. They gave you the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. The bare minimum. Yeah. So then what happened? So it must have been four months later, you hear your name being called on the Tuesday night, right? One night they called us. And uh, a whole group. And we we went to Bergen-Belsen. They brought us to Bergen-Belsen. We had to walk. First, first, our train was standing for about three days, not moving anywhere. I wasn't in a cattle. Again, somehow God looked out for us. 
Because in a cattle train, we might have died right away. Just from the pressure, the cold? Yeah. It was not a cab. The train was standing. Later on, I found out, after the war, when I went there, I went back there. They told us the reason the train was standing there is because the camp was not ready yet. It was a brand new camp, mm -hmm. Bergen-Belsen. So they had no bunk beds yet. Nothing was ready. So after three days... So you, you were literally on a train for three days. Oh, yeah. Uh, again, I, I'm trying to compare this just to like life examples. You know, when someone's on a plane for an hour and uh, they get <laughs> delayed and it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, it was terrible. We were on... And you were on a train for three days. Three days. Without any movement, without... Any nothing. pilot coming on to tell no, you what the delays are? Nothing, nothing. But we were lucky we were, we were not in a cattle train. Right. We didn't know about that, but we, that's where we were. A whole contingent. Of a, so after three days, we went and we stopped in a town. And the name of the town was... Tell her, tell her, I think. Anyway, it was snowing, it was cold. We had to get out and we had to walk. And we walked for a whole day to get to Bergen-Belsen. That was it. That was our destination. And yeah, the camp was brand new. The only people that were there were some Russian prisoners of war who were treated abominably. They all died. They all died. And uh, we came to the camp, and that's when our camp life started, Bergen Belsen. So, so I really want to get into as, as much detail as you feel comfortable sharing, um, really from kind of like start to finish in terms of what your life experience was like. Again, because I, I think, I think when, when we kind of hear what people have gone through, um, you know, in a certain lens, it, it should allow us to appreciate our lives a little bit more. So if you could walk us through, you come to Bergen-Belsen. We come to Bergen-Belsen. We had to drop some stuff on the way because we couldn't carry all of it in the snow. And when we came to Bergen-Belsen, our contingent was standing around. They always made you stand at, it was called appel, which is roll call. They were crazy about that. We stood at we stood at roll call, and in a circle, and the commandant comes over. And he looks at the looks us over, with only women, with only women and children, because the men went somewhere else. And he says, "Oh, you whatever they cursed us, you dirty Jewish women pig, or whatever." He says, next year, you're not going to look like that because we still look, you know, normal. Healthy. He says, you're not going to look like that. That, that. that was his hello. Wow. And then we were there and, and it, it, it gradually, my mother had a job. We came to Bergen-Belsen and, and, and um, barracks, you know, we used, usually we slept one, two, three bunks, and then another three next to us. So it was six bunks sure. in the bed. So 
we come to the camp, and then um, my mother had to drop. She was gone a whole day. Not a whole day. Uh, first, we had to stand at Appel. Again, roll call every single day. Rain or shine for hours. They would count us, count, count us. And things went from bad to worse. We got less and less food. The climate was awful. It was very cold. Uh, yeah, it was like on a, on a prairie, you know, that kind of a land. Mm -hmm. In the summer, it got hot, but in, it was cold. We had to stand. The food was getting worse. People started getting sick. Mostly, they died from um, dehydration. They got, they got um, typhus, typhoid. Oh, sorry. Typhoid, typhus, and... They just died. I mean, you went to sleep at night. The next morning, you saw people who had died during the night. Well, so I, I want to stop you for a second just because I want to try and go in order. Huh? When you first got there, you know, again, a lot of my questions are based on kind of the images or, or reflections that I have. Did they, like, shave your heads and, you know, do those take your belongings away? No. It wasn't that kind of a camp. Okay. The, uh, actually, they said that Bergen-Belsen was like an experimentation to see how long people could endure lack of food, lack of water, lack of hygiene. Just let them go on. Don't do anything. They, they, there were no, no gas chambers. Of, of the, they just died. And I saw... I saw people, I saw children dying in front of my eyes wow. from a dehydra dehydration mostly. And, and it, it's, to me, to me, it's such a crazy thought that you're, you know, 10 years old and you're seeing death to your left, death to your right, All death in front of you. How is a 10 year old processing that? You get used to it. It's a way of life. I was there for, I was in that camp for 18 months. And 10 years, just remember, 10 years old, it's very little. Yeah. And if you see all this happening in front of you, I just, I don't know. I was alone because my mother went to her job every day. What did she do? She was cleaning the uh, barracks, the kitchens of the SS. And at the risk of her life, she used to bring home for us children. She went to the garbage. She took out the potato peels, whatever she could get her hands on. And she would bring it back to us to eat. D did you work at all? What did no, you do? No, 10 years old. I had, we were a lot of kids. The ones who stayed alive, stayed alive. Oh, we played games. We, oh, that. Kids are kids. You see, uh, it's difficult to explain that, but it really is. It had not that much effect on me while I was there. The effect came after. Later, right. When we were liberated, and we, you know, and I saw I had lost 
most of my friends, that's when the guilt came. So I, I want to get to there soon, but um, so I guess my question again is kind of like you were here for, what do you say, a year and eight eight months? Yeah. So what was your, you know, kids are very resourceful. They They learn how to kind of, you know, entertain themselves in certain we situations. We did. We played games. What do you know? What games you played? Like, uh, do you remember? Yeah, like only games that you play outdoors, like, like tag. Up. We had this game where one guy stood like that, and then and the next guy bent down with his head down in his lap, and uh, then they made a whole row like that, and then you had to jump on that. Kids games. Kids games, and that's what you did most of the day. Hmm? That's what you did most of the day. Yeah, well, most of the day, half the day was taken up with standing at the roll call. Uh -huh. And the other half, yeah, I don't know. You see, how can I explain to you a 10-year-old child? I was there, and I had contemporaries with me. Right. Uh, I don't know, and my like I said, my mother was very strong, brave woman, and my mother had a few friends. She did. She had a few friends in camp, believe it or not. They all came from Switzerland, so they had like a club. Never heard it. I never, never heard it. Did you did you make friends in the camps? Hmm? Did you make friends in the camps? Did, did, do you remember like? Yeah, uh, I had some very good. I have close friends. Well, they all died aye. mostly. I had some that survived. They survived. They wound up in Israel. I lost contact with them. I was too young. Right. I came to America. Started a whole new life. Right. Do you remember in the camps like? discussing like what you're doing here or like discussing death or discussing your experiences with your friends discussing what discussing your experiences with your friends like did where did, here in, no in the camps when you were in the camps did you like talk about oh you know this person died that person no 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 it was part of the uh it was part of the environment you saw people people dying yeah, again, I'm, I'm only because of like when I when we experience in this community, you know, someone passes away. Maybe it's because it doesn't happen so often. You know, we talk about it. Do you know this person died? Do you know that person died? But by you, it wasn't even like a topic of conversation. I was ten. Right. Just remember that I was ten yeah. years old, and from the time I was seven, I didn't even know of a different kind of a life. Wow. I knew you were Jewish. I knew they were going to come and take you. I knew you had to wear a star. And I was lucky that my mother, she stayed alive. She, got, she was very sick at the end. So it's almost as if you thought normal living consisted of people dying every day. and That's it. You came there and... and uh, this is what everyone experiences. You, uh, wow. I didn't think about anything. I, I was just there. In the end, things got very bad. They got really bad. They did that slowly, slowly, slowly. It got bad. I wound up sleeping. That, that, that At first we had bunks, regular, you know. Then they made them very narrow, like maybe 28 inches or 30 inches. And then you had 
two people sleeping in, in a bunk. I slept with my mother for a long time. The two of us slept on a bunk like that, the two of us. So we learned to sleep this way, you see? Right. Her feet were here, my head was here. Uh-huh. But thank God she stayed alive. Now, what about like Yamim Tovim and Shabbos? Hmm? Like um, all the Yamim Tovim or just, you know, it's making... Well, br- there wasn't much we could do, but... Did people know when it was Shams? My, my, my mother was a very religious woman. She yeah. didn't wear shaitel, but she was very from... She found a boy in the camp to teach my brother, who was only eight years old, to teach him. Teach him how to daven and to... Wow. Now, where was your brother at this time? Because you said it was an all-female he, he camp. He was there. It, it wasn't separated men and, and women? Yeah, but he was a little boy. So he was with you also? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and she got somebody to learn with him. Wow. My mother. And they did that all by heart, right? She may have had a sitter. Well, I had the hummus. So what was your what was your religious, you know, life Very, like? But, uh, I mean there was nothing much we could do. But we were so, we were very, I mean, very religious. No, so what, what I mean more is in terms of like, you know, some people, when they were in this, in the camps, they lost their faith. They lost faith in humanity. But it wasn't me, yeah. Ellie. You have, to, you have to get that into your head. I, I try to explain that to a lot of kids. Yeah. That wasn't me. I was 10 years old. And I knew I had to say Krishna, and I knew I had to, uh, up until today, I'm always amazed how well I know my Krishna by heart, every uh. syllable. I had to say Krishna, and when it was Friday night, we knew it was Friday night, and, uh, but there wasn't much we could do. I, halavai, all the third graders I know are saying Kriyashima. What? If only I, all the third graders that I know are saying Kriyashima like you were. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so you, you never called into question, you know, if, you know, my mom's telling me about Hashem, but where's Hashem if all this no, is going No, I don't think she talked about Hashem. No? I don't know. Maybe she did. I mean, before, in Amsterdam, I went to shul every single Friday night. Beautiful new shul. The architects who built that shul just before the war... They were hiding by us. We, we, we were hiding them. A beautiful shul. Every Friday night and Shabbos. And even sometimes in Mincha. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, while you were in the camps, did you lose any close relatives or friends? We're in the camp? Yeah. Nobody. My one aunt and my cousin. Right had been sent to Auschwitz. My father was away. Um, I, I had an aunt and another cousin. They were sent to Auschwitz. Then I had an aunt and an uncle in Antwerp with two kids. They were sent to Auschwitz. So no, nobody really survived. So after Bergen-Belsen, after a year and eight months, you were sent to another camp? 
after Bergen-Belsen, we were, yeah, we were picked out. I told you, we had these papers, you know. We were put on a list, and they were going to ex exchange us. Uh, they had a deal with the Red Cross, with Swiss. They were going to get back German prisoners of war, and they're going to let us go. So about 300 of us, out of that whole camp of uh, how many people they were, they called us one day in the summer. We're sitting all on the floor, and they called out these 300 names, and they said, you should know, we are going to send, take you out of here, and you're going to be exchanged, and the Red Cross, the whole story. We never heard of them for the next six months. No, nobody heard of them. And no, Finally, after six months, it was winter time. God remembered us. That's all I can say. And they called out the 300 names. Out of the 300, it was already less than 200 that died. And she said, now you're going out, and we're going to exchange you. There's a deal with the Red Cross, and you're going to go. So they took us out, made us take a shower, and uh, we're on the train, and the Red Cross comes on to do this deal. You know, they were supposed to, they took one look at us, and they said, oh, no. She said, they said, we, we can't take these people anywhere. We can't, we can't show the world what, what they look like. We were like skeletons. We were, half the people were dead already. No, no, no. They said, we can't do it. So that's the miracle. They took us off the train. They made us walk for a day or two. And then we came to a Red Cross camp, which was also prisoners of war, but they were treated very humanely. And they dumped us over there. I have a whole book where they wrote about us. And 200 people from Bergen-Belsen, we looked like skeletons. We... That was the miracle. That was our miracle. They could have shot. Why didn't they kill us? I mean, they were killing them left and right. They should, could have shot all of us, but they did. They made us walk. We went to that camp. And there we waited out the war until they were liberated, and we were liberated there. Well, we're a, we are we are a walking miracle. Yes, the fact that we were taken out of that hellhole—you have no idea what Bergen Bells was. I can't even explain. The fact that we were taken out of there—why? Why were we put on a list and and, and it took us away? And every Pesach, I say to my kids, "Bizroa natuyo." God, it's like God pulled us out of there. Why? I don't know. But we did. We and another 200 people. That's it. All the rest stayed at Berg Bells and they died. Well, um, a, a couple of other questions I have. First of all, do you have numbers on your arm? No. No. That was only done where? 
No, that wasn't for that, that was that wasn't in Bergen-Belsen. Not in Bergen-Belsen. Um, People just died. It was an experiment, right? And what about your interactions with the guards in Bergen-Belsen? With who? With the guards. The guards? Yeah. Were they were they not were they nice? Were they not nice? They never even. Uh, we had no con- no contact with them. But didn't they give you orders and things like that? They might have done it with some of the adults, but not not with the kids. Was there ever a thought to escape? Hmm? Was there ever a thought to escape the camps? Asleep? To escape. Oh, I think uh, maybe on a few occasions, but they caught them. Uh, it was impossible. And and they, they killed them when they found hmm? them? They shot them once they found them? or They shot them. They killed them. It was almost impossible because it was on a... Like I said, the hide it's like a, a prairie, right. wide open space. There's nowhere you could go. Wow. I was terrified of one thing, bomb, bombings, drove me crazy. Even before we were sent to the camp, you know, the, the British used to fly over Holland into Germany and bomb. I used to fly over Amsterdam. So they had anti-aircraft. So every once in a while they shut down one or two of those British planes with bombs. I was terrified. Mm -hmm. I was terrified. I was younger. I said, please, God. I I would lie on the floor like that. I saw how the Goyim dobbin. Like that, please, God. Please let us... Go to the camp already. I want to go to the camp. Uh, The the bombs terrified me. Were you nervous about dying in the camps? What? Were you nervous about dying? About about dying, about death? Not about myself. I was worried about my mother. Very much so. Pray to God, please don't let my mommy die. Don't let her die. My mother was pretty sick. She lost her her equilibrium and and, and she couldn't see because she was deprived of sugar and salt. If you're deprived of that, it's not good. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about liberation. Liberation? Do you remember remember that day? Well, oh, yeah. Liberation, we were in that British Red Cross camp. Yeah. And uh, the French liberated us, as a matter of fact. Oh, my God. That was a yontif. First of all, we were let loose. We could go wherever we wanted. In Germany... We could go into the towns, we would go in, we would get poached their eggs and whatever they had. We were free. I was so young, Ellie. Yeah. Think of it. Yeah. I was a 10-year-old. Then, after the war was over, and... uh, then when we realized what would happen, then I realized how all my friends had died. There was nobody there anymore, maybe one, two. Then I started feeling very guilty. I said, 
God, how come you let me look? They all died and I'm... I'm Survivor's guilt. Yeah. And then when we came to the United States. I never, ever spoke about it. Never. I made a lot of American friends when we came to Borough Park. It was a Jewish-American neighborhood. No Holocaust survivors, nothing. I had friends. They never knew that I was in the camp. Never. Really? Never talked about it. And as a matter of fact, my mother didn't talk about it either. We never talked about it. And your brother survived also? Yeah. And your, and your grandmother? My, my brother? No, your grandmother. My grandmother also survived. Wow, can I know her? And, and my grandmother, she was also in Bergen-Belsen with us. She was a Tzedekist. She, she lived with us during the war. Her lips were moving around the clock. She was saying her Tehillim 24-7. And while she was saying the Tehillim, she used to clean the windows. She was very spotless and clean. All the time. She was davening, davening. And she was in camp with us, and she survived. She never touched the food that they gave us. She gave it to the... She would, she would maybe zip off some liquid from the thing. She'd give it to the young people in her bunk. She was in a different bunk. She would say to him, to them here... You needed more. You have to stay alive. And she never, it never bothered her. She was, she was always a small eater, so it didn't really bother her. Mm -hmm. It's so amazing to see kind of what you've been through and, and the family that you've been able to, to build you know, together with your husband. It's, it, it's a miracle in and of itself also, you know. We are a miracle. Our, we, our family is a miracle. The way we, we, that small little transport of people, that God took us out. Took us out. Because it's not normal. There's no reason in the world why they should have sent us out, showered us, put us on a train, and then when it didn't work out, not kill us. Because they could have shot us. So I, I want to know because, again, like you, like you expressed, a, a lot of your experiences, you were very, very young at the time. Yeah. And sometimes when children are young and they go through something traumatic, they don't really get to process it until much later in life. Well, I think about the Holocaust now all the time. When I go to a wedding or a dinner and I see a thousand young people gathered there, children, mostly the children and the, and the uh, you know, young adults. Then I think of the Holocaust. Then I, then I see Auschwitz in my mind. Then I see the gas chambers. Then I see the crematoriums. And I think about it and I say, my God, how did you, how did you allow this to happen? Then I see the Hordes and hordes of Hungarian. I see it all in front of me. The Hungarian Jews, they did a job on them. And I see them all walking in Auschwitz, how they get off the train, all these women with their children, and, and, and straight into the gas chamber. I see that. So 
I never thought about it before when, when I was younger. When, when do you think you first started to process what happened in the war? To what? When did you first start to process? Meaning when you were 20, were you thinking about the war or you blocked it out? No. Oh, when I was 20 years old, I used to have a nightmare. I did. I had nightmare. I had my daughter holding her. She was a baby. I was married already. But my husband was never there. I was running away from the Nazi, holding the baby. In, in your nightmare? Huh? In my nightmare. But, uh, yeah, I, I used to have it, but then it, it disappeared. Now, um, when you were dating your husband, did you tell him about your experiences in the war? Very little. Not too much. Mm. There, there's a lot of talk about how the generation that survived the war um, maybe parented differently, definitely had a different outlook. You know, they, they were, there's so much resilience yeah. for that generation. How do you think it impacted kind of the way you were a parent? The way I was what? The way you parented. My parent? The way no. I parented? Yeah. I did not involve my kids in the Holocaust at all, ever, until... It became fashionable. <laughs> it did. With when El did it become fashionable? Elie Wiesel. It became, the Holocaust became an item. Uh -huh. It never, even the word Holocaust never, never really existed. When it became an item, it was a different story. But did I talk about it with my husband that much? No, no, he figured he knew it all already. He said, I know about it. He knew about it. And they were in Siberia during the war. But... Uh, yeah, he, I don't know. You have to realize who you're talking to with 10-year-olds. Right. So, so I want to, I wanna, I'm curious about the following. You know, many times you have 10-year-olds that something could happen to them in their life. Yeah. Some sort of trauma. Yeah. And they're, they're dealing it, with it for the rest of their life. They're mm -hmm. not able to function mm -hmm. because of events that happened in their childhood. Right. Um. And then you have you that, that experienced things that are also clearly traumatic and you were able to build such an amazing life. You're able to function so well. What do you attribute that to? I think it's my, my character, my nature. I was born that way to be, you know... A fighter. I, a fighter. I was very, very protective of my mother in the camp, even in Bergen-Belsen. My mother was really like my daughter. I always looked out for her, and I was young, very young. People shouldn't insult her. People wouldn't, you know, I was very protective of my mother. I always said, I always said I'm my mother's mother. <laughs> I did. Yeah. But I had a different life. I think I was messed up. Uh, it wasn't so simple. I didn't have a, my father. I was separated from my father from the age of seven until 13. 13 is a very difficult age to be reunited with a father who you build up in your mind like a god. My father was whatever, you know. And then when we finally got together... And we were reunited. She wasn't like that at all. He mm -hmm. was, he was, he was a broken man. 
because of the of us. I was messed up in a way. So, so in what ways? <laughs> I like the way that you 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 phrase it. But in what ways? I mean, how did it manifest? Well, at, yeah. Well, messed up. How was I messed up? Yeah, meaning how did it how did it impact you? Meaning did it did it make it difficult for you to function? Were you very anxious? Were you no no depressed? Not really no no. I just had thoughts of guilt. I told you I felt very guilty. All my friends, you know. And I had a very, I could rebuild my relationship with my father at all, which is sad. When I think about it now, I feel so bad for you, Daddy. I couldn't. I couldn't. I was a teenager. You were upset at him? Huh? You were upset at him? Well, I, th for, I thought I had built him up in my mind and I felt that once we would get together again, that he, I felt he didn't put my mother on a pedestal. I thought he, my mom, he was going to put my mother on a pedestal. In the meanwhile, turned out my mother, t my mother became a real good European wife again, and she catered to my father and bothered me. Uh -huh. Why, you know, he should have, whatever. My mother was perfectly happy with him, but I felt that so I'm saying I was messed up uh -huh. with certain things. But a lot of people are messed up. Yeah, <laughs> very messed up. <laughs> um, as we come to, come to a close, you know, I don't know if it's so interesting what I'm telling you. It's very interesting because I wasn't in a gas chamber. <laughs> I don't know anyone who's been in the gas chamber that could come and speak about their experiences. But um, as you kind of see the world and you see anti-Semitism, um, a lot of times people will make these comparisons to the Holocaust. You know, this is similar to what took place, you know, 60, 70 years ago. W what do you make of comments like I'm that? I'm very scared. I'm very afraid. Uh Scared. Listen, I know my Jewish history. Asaph, Sona, Yisroel, that's all. It never changes. Why are they hating us today? Today of all days, why is the whole world hating us? Why? I get scared. Like I said, if I go to a big function and I see a thousand young people, Jewish children and little children and big, and I think to myself that all this was put into a gas chamber and then put on into, into crematoriums like a chicken that you broil. It's terrible. I think about that. And then I, I, then I pray to God. I said, God, I said, why, why, why don't you just why don't these terrible things happen to them? Like now with the Ukraine that's going on. Yeah. Are you following that? Enough you, to know that. A little bit. The Ukrainians were the worst anti-Semites. What they did to the Jews. I mean, they were ready to anything. So I said, good, good. <laughs> so there should be a war and they should kill each other. Yeah. Is, are they going to kill each other? No. Please, God, make them kill each other. Right. 
I, I carry it with me. Now at this point in my life, I do. Yeah. What do you think about the idea that, you know, there are very few survivors left? Where now? Yeah, there are very few survivors left. And well, they all died. What do you mean left? They, they were, they're all in their 90s. Correct. They died. That's what I'm saying, meaning, but, you know. Uh, every week there's somebody else dying. My generation was fortunate that I was able to be and talk with survivors. The next generation is not going to have any survivors to speak to. That no, can- no, no. But, you know, Jews have very short memories. Look at us. If we wouldn't have short memories, we would be able to survive after what we've gone through. I mean, starting with the Inquisition, even before, and, and the pogroms, and the Holocaust, and we forget. But, but you have people that deny the Holocaust, you know, and, and they say that yeah, it never but not, happened. But not survivors. No, of course not survivors. Yeah, oh, they, I don't know, they, listen, it suits them. Is it important to you that we that we tell over to our children and grandchildren what happened? I'm not a big believer in it because, like I told you, I, I never, never told my friends or anyone that I was in a con- concentration camp. I was a ba- I was ashamed. Actually, that's what I felt: ashamed that I saw this and lived, I saw a lot of things that I'm, I'm not even telling you what I saw. But uh, I saw things which I felt a 10-year-old shouldn't have seen, or a 12-year-old. Never, never talked about it. But now, now I'm, it's not so great. I'm afraid. You know, it happened in our history all the time. Why should it happen again? Right. And and Jews have never lived as well as they live now. What do you think we could do to, to help prevent something like this? To what? To help prevent something like this happening again. Shoot them. <laughs> That's it. I hear you. There's nothing. What can we do? What can yeah. you do? Protect if, ourselves. If the governments are not cooperating and, 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 and uh, I don't know. It's a scary thought. I don't think anything like the Holocaust could ever happen again. But then we don't know. When they had the Inquisition, they said nothing could ever happen again. And you probably thought when, you know, meaning the people during when you were growing up probably thought there was no way that that could happen. What? Prior to the Holocaust taking place, no, people probably thought there's no way it could happen. Prior to the Holocaust? Yeah, they probably who, thought... Yeah. Who could imagine this? Who right. could even imagine this? Right. Who? So we're, we're, we're at our wrap-up point. I have a couple of final questions for yeah, you. Yeah, I have all the time in the world. What are, what are some of the misconceptions people have about the Holocaust? Hmm? What are some of the misconceptions that people have about the Holocaust? People, well, you talk about Goyim? Goyim, Jews, anyone. Oh, they feel, nah, it's exaggerated, it didn't really happen like that. It wasn't such a big deal. You know, what do they know? And and those comments, what what do they do to you when you hear that? 
Do they? Do they? To me? Yeah. Do they bother they you? They never said it to me. I I read. I mean, I'm reading about it in the paper. Uh, if somebody would say it to me, what 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 we're gonna tell them? What about, I was there and I know what it's like. What what am I gonna tell them? So what what feelings do you have when you read about people that say it wasn't so bad, it didn't really happen? What's well, but not people who were there. Yeah, outsiders. Yeah. What what feeling I have? Same old story. Nobody feels sorry for a Jew. They don't. Right. They don't. What was the what was the lowest point? What was the most difficult moment or most difficult thing about going through the war? Uh-huh. I'm just trying to think. You know, going through the war was just sleeping through it. I was seven years old when it started and it went on. But after it was it was hard to be to be a survivor and to have left to have lost all this everything my childhood it was very difficult for me I, even today I said they they messed messed up my childhood I had beautiful childhood we lived in a beautiful city we had a, a, a nice apartment we our lifestyle was fantastic and you know in 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 Amsterdam we had everything we had a uh, a soccer, I think a soccer team, and we had a theater. We had two Jewish hospitals because the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim split up in a lot of things. The Portuguese had one, and we had another one. Amsterdam was gorgeous. What can I tell you? Now, everything was owned by Jews. All the big department stores were all Jewish-owned. And it was all taken away from them in one day. The minute they came in, with the keys. We had beautiful, uh, we had two hospitals, I told you, and the schools, and a, and a high school, a, a, a gymnasium. And, oh, we had a radio station, uh-huh. beautiful radio station. And they used to sing on it. Everything was beautiful, just Perfect. And all that was taken away from you. Huh? And all of that was taken away from you. In in one day. Wow. Because that, even I, I traveled to Hungary because uh, one of my nieces married a boy, Flagman. I don't know if you know, you know the Flagman? Sure. In, in, uh, in uh, Lawrence? Yeah. Roby. So we went to Hungary because... That's where his family came from, and he wanted to make a bar mitzvah there for his son. So we went to, came to Hungary, and we went to that town called Mod, Mod, Hungarian town, beautiful little town. The Jews were so prosperous, they, they made wine. It was famous. Lived together with their Hungarian neighbors for centuries. In one day, one day, the Germans came in, and and that's it. All the Jews were taken to the train station and shipped off to Auschwitz. In one day. Yeah. And the neighbors, the neighbors, 
They stood by. They moved into the houses. So it's very scary. I hate to do that to you. But, you know, I, I'm scared. I, I really, I get scared, you know. I'm afraid. Yeah. But there's no point in being afraid. You have to go on and live your life and and do the best you can. And tr and trust in Hashem that, that he has a plan. Well, and he's, I trust in Hashem, mm -hmm. but what does, he have in, what does he have in store for us? Right. What have you learned from surviving the war? Like a lesson in life that someone who never went through what you went through would, would have learned. What did you learn? From who? From your experiences in life. Well, I know that I'm, I'm tough. I don't know why, but I am. I know that, you know, I'm pretty tough. But what I learned from my experience is to thank God, to say, thank you, Hashem. You did it. You, you, you look at me. Look at me today and look what, look what you saved me from. There has to be a reason. So I have developed a little personal relationship with Hashem. Talk to him once in a while. And uh, yeah, I feel I feel privileged because the way we the way we would survive again. I'm telling you, it's, it's like a miracle, a real miracle. A mother, my grandmother, an older lady, and the two children, and that we got out of that Gehenna, and we were taken out. So I feel. There has to be a reason. Wow. What's your message to today's generation that are going through difficult challenges um, and they feel like they, they can't do it anymore? They feel like they can't function, that they can't live their life, that they're really, really struggling. And you had, you know, experiences and you've shown real resilience and a real ability to rebuild after losing everything. What's your message to people that are going through difficult challenges of their own? Roll with the punches <laughs> and do the best you can. And uh, listen, I mean, when I came to America, I was nothing. Uh, okay, my father was working, making a living, but nothing big. But I was nothing. I had nothing much. I, I wasn't much of anything. I don't know. You got to, like I said, roll with the punches. Okay. Well, Never give up. Bobby, Leah, this was an absolute pleasure and a real, real gift. Um, I'm, I'm so, so happy to... Well, I hope it was worthwhile. I don't know. I always feel... What was I talking about? Nonsense. <laughs> Not at all. I, I think the, the world needs to hear, A, what, what life was like for people um, so that we can appreciate what we have and to we recognize... Can. We can. And to recognize that just because someone's gone through such terrible experiences doesn't mean the rest well, of the... Well, I always feel, like I told you, guilt. I feel that I really did, didn't have enough. I mean, there were people who I know who lost every member of their family. Everybody was killed. And, and they, they were in the most awful camps. Belsen was pretty bad. There were other bad camps. 
And I felt that maybe, you know, I was lucky that I didn't have to go through a lot of the stuff. Right. I came out intact with my family. Right. Well. But you are a great interviewer. <laughs> anyway, thank you so, so much for, for taking the time. Well, thanks for coming. I hope it was okay. It was I, unbelievable. I thank I you mean, so much. Hey, everyone. We hope you gained from this show. If you did, please subscribe, share, and leave us a five-star review. It really helps get our work out there. If you or someone you know would like to appear on the show to represent a particular challenge, or if you have questions or comments, email us at rollingwiththepunchespodcast at gmail.com. To partner with us or to sponsor an episode, you can also email us at rollingwiththepunchespodcast at gmail.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to submit your questions for upcoming episodes. A quick disclaimer, all information exchanged on the show is intended for educational and support purposes only. This information should not be considered treatment or medical advice. You must always follow your medical professional's advice and direction. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified mental health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or mental disorder. A quick thank you and a big shout out to Joey Newcomb for letting us use his song, You Fall Down, You Get Back Up.